Welcome to On Attachment, a place to learn about how attachment shapes the way we experience dating, love, and relationships. I'm your host, relationship coach and attachment expert, Stephanie Rigg, and I'm really glad you're here. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of On Attachment. Today's episode is going to be all about the anxious avoidant trap, which is the situation that ensues when an anxious person and an avoidant person are in relationship with each other. Before we dive into that, I just wanted to announce and let you all know that my signature program, Healing Anxious Attachment, is reopening for enrollment very soon. It's an amazing program. It's really comprehensive. We had over 150 people in the first round of the program earlier this year, and they've had some incredible results and transformations in only six weeks. So if you are someone who experiences and struggles with anxious attachment and you're looking for knowledge, tools, and support to really start breaking out of some of those patterns, I would really, really encourage you to sign up to the wait list, uh, which is in the show notes. Um, And that way you can be notified when enrollment opens and you'll also get exclusive discount pricing and exclusive bonuses. So if that's of interest to you, I really encourage you to check it out. Okay. So the anxious avoidant trap. As I said, the anxious avoidant trap is a situation where you have a person with an anxious attachment style in a relationship with someone with an avoidant attachment style. I think in its most classical expression of the anxious avoidant trap, we're probably talking about a dismissive avoidant, um, but equally some of the things we're going to talk about today could certainly be present between an anxious and a fearful avoidant person. So a super quick recap to contextualize what we're talking about here. You've got an anxious person on the one hand who has really high intimacy needs, you know, who wants to be close to their partner all the time, who wants to spend a lot of time together, who really prioritizes the relationship above all else, um, who you know, doesn't have as much need for space and privacy. Um, And then you've got the avoidant person who, you know, really has some fear around relationship and, you know, is kind of staunchly independent. They really protect their autonomy. They protect their privacy. They protect their space. Um, And they don't tend to prioritize their relationship, their romantic relationship, Uh, above other aspects of their life in the same way that an anxious person does. So they may pay equal or more attention to things like work or friends or family. Um, And so when these people come together in a relationship, there is this almost like a standoff of conflicting needs. Um, So the anxious person really wants to get close to the avoidant person And often those attempts at getting close trigger the avoidant person to pull away because as we've talked about, they have all of these fear stories around, you know, needing to protect their independence, needing to make sure they're not being trapped or smothered or controlled by their partner. 
And so the anxious person's attempts at getting close and at, you know, creating the intimacy that they crave are seen as really overwhelming for the avoidant partner, right? And so the avoidant partner does what? They withdraw because that's what they do. That's how they know to create safety for themselves is by pulling away. Problematically, you've then got the anxious person who is faced with someone pulling away um, and they in turn amplify or intensify their efforts at getting close because that's how the anxious person knows to create safety is by recreating, reestablishing connection when that connection feels threatened in some way. Um, And so it can really spiral into this thing of, you know, one person chasing or pursuing and the other withdrawing and pulling away. And that tends to, you know, only get more and more intense as the cycle plays out because they're both triggering each other um, in such an intense way. So the question you may be asking yourself is, why would these people be in relationship with one another when there's so clearly a conflict between their needs and their preferences? And, you know, there are of course many explanations for this and they'll be different from person to person, but a common thread is that when we look at the core beliefs of the anxious person and the avoidant person, those core beliefs on the anxious side, we have, you know, I am unlovable. I'm not good enough. No one cares as much as I do. People always reject me. People always leave me. I'm going to end up alone. These are like the core wounds and core beliefs that sit at the heart of many anxiously attached people. On the avoidance side, some of those core beliefs around relationships are, you know, relationships are unsafe, people are needy, um, people want more from me than I can give them, I'm better off alone, all of these sorts of things. And so when an anxious and avoidant person come together, the behavior of the other partner and, you know, the relationship itself actually reaffirms a lot of those core beliefs on both sides. And I think it's important to understand that even when something is ostensibly painful or challenging or difficult or distressing, um, you know, we are really, really good at recreating situations that affirm our core beliefs and our view of the world, right? We cling to the familiar, even if, you know, on some level, even if you know, intellectually, we know that it's not healthy or it's not working. There is a level of comfort in the familiar that drives us to recreate these situations that even though they're painful, it's a familiar pain. It's a pain that we have been working with for a long time and we know how to navigate. So if I've spent my whole life telling myself like, no one loves me as much as I love them. And you know, I have all these self-sacrificial behaviors and overgiving and it's like, that's a dance that I know, right? I know how to be that way. Um, and so if I'm then in a relationship with a dismissive avoidant, who's really, um, hot and cold with me, who's only sometimes available, who's really, um, yeah, pulls away and, and maybe isn't there for me in the way that 
I want in terms of the level of intimacy, what does that do? Well, that reaffirms my story that no one cares as much as I do. No one will ever love me in the way that I love them. You know, I'm going to end up alone. I'm always going to be rejected. It becomes part of the body of evidence that, you know, we are all collecting at all times to support the way that we view the world, right? On the avoidance side, again, we're going, okay, how does this, you know, how does this relationship serve their core beliefs? Well, by dating someone who is anxious and, you know, by doing that sort of painful dance of really high trigger environment, high conflict, the anxious person becoming increasingly distressed and activated, and they might be getting quite, you know, intense in their efforts at reconnecting. That works perfectly for the avoidant person because they go, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. People are too much. People are crazy. People are needy. Relationships are not worth the effort. I'm better off alone. Right? So that relationship allows them to um, preserve their core beliefs and their views around relationships, right? Those core beliefs on both sides are very much intact, even though they're not healthy beliefs and even though they're not beliefs that are really conducive to a secure relationship. Again, we have to remind ourselves that, you know, these these patterns and our, all of our sort of default operating systems around relationships are not there to help us thrive, right? They are oftentimes survival-based. They're there to keep us safe. And so if ever you notice that there's a disjunct between, you know, what you would ideally want and what you say you want for your relationships and the situations you keep finding yourself in, there's a good chance that, you know, you're acting from a place of survival, right? Um, And that's really what happens when our nervous system takes over um, and, you know, we are making decisions from this fear-based place. So with all of that being said, you might be thinking that it all sounds a bit... uh, pessimistic or like a bit of a doomsday outlook. And it certainly can be hard, right? And I don't want to downplay the challenges that can come with that pairing. Um, But at the same time, it certainly doesn't need to be, um, it's not a write-off, right? Um, And if you're in a relationship at the moment, that is, you know, if you're anxious and you're in a relationship with an avoidant or vice versa, you don't necessarily need to just like cut your losses and move on. But that being said, like it will take a level of, of work um, more so than it would if you were dating a secure person or someone who wasn't so diametrically opposed in terms of what your ideal relationship would look like, right? Um, and there is work to be done to make sure that you are meeting in the middle um, and that you're both open to compromising on your needs to a degree such that you can find what a healthy balance might look like. So on the anxious side, the growth edge for you is going to be tolerating a level of space and separateness because for the anxious person, the ideal situation would be, you know, that 
almost like an enmeshment, a collapsing into one another that we spend all our time together, that like we tell each other every single thing that ever happens and, you know, that we are, you know, messaging each other all day long and that we do everything together. We're joined at the hip and like that's just the ideal, right? Because the anxious person only knows how to navigate life through another person or via another person. So if you're on the anxious side, your work is really learning to tolerate space um, and and figuring out who you are independent of the relationship and also really importantly not taking the avoidant person's need for space personally because as soon as you, you know, encounter their need for space, if they pull away and they need to take some time for themselves and you start making meaning out of that and catastrophizing and panicking and then your response to that is to go and, and try and, you know, reconnect to ask them what's wrong, to try and make sure everything's okay. It's going to have really the opposite effect and they're going to pull away further, which is going to trigger you further, right? It's so being really self-responsible around honoring someone else's boundaries in space, even when that might not be your preference, because it's ultimately much healthier for you in your own, you know, for your own self to learn to be in your own company and and to self-regulate rather than always finding safety via someone else, right? On the avoidance side of the street, your work, if you're in an anxious avoidant relationship, is to really learn that (laughs) there is another person here, right? And that you will have to sacrifice some of that autonomy and some of that independence that really is like a safety blanket to you. Um, So letting someone in, letting yourself be seen by someone and trusting someone, um, you know, making a level of commitment to someone and really like being, you know, accountable to them and realizing that, you know, you actually do have to take someone else into account when, you know, going about your life, planning things like that there is actually another, another sort of actor in the play rather than it just being you as the sole protagonist. Right. And that can be hard for an avoidant person. If you've spent a long time on your own and you're used to only being answerable to yourself. Um, so learning to tolerate that interdependency learning to think more about how your behavior might impact someone else, learning to, you know, offer up a level of reassurance to them is going to serve you really well. And that will be your work. As a final note, and I think this really applies to both the anxious and the avoidant people in the relationship is rather than thinking about like, how can I get what I want from this person? can we shift into how can I contribute to this person's sense of safety? I think that's such a beautiful shift um, because rather than it being, you know, self-focused on like getting something from them, getting your needs met from them, understanding that in contributing to their experience of safety in the relationship, you will organically 
get so much more from them than you would if you were, you know, trying to elicit from them what you want, right? It's like, how can I, it's like the safety that I create is almost like fertilizer or soil that allows all of this connection to grow on its own in a really beautiful organic way rather than like, you know, holding someone by, by the collar and, and demanding things from them, demanding that they open up, demanding that they, you know, tell you what's going on. It's like, okay, how can I create safety so that they feel like they can open freely and that that feels like a safe landing ground for them? Um, so I think that, you know, if you are in this kind of relationship, realizing that feeding those cycles of pursue, withdraw, feeding those conflict patterns is so counterproductive. And the more you do that, the deeper you will be entrenched into that, you know, lack of emotional safety, you really deplete the goodwill in the relationship by, by feeding those cycles. And it's like, you know, every time you have one of those fights and it's like, you could play it on repeat and it's just the same thing, right? Uh, every time you do that, it's like, you're doing, you know, you're at the gym and you're doing more repetitions of an exercise to strengthen a muscle that you actually don't want to be strengthening, right? It's just like, it becomes more and more etched in to our body and to our, our, you know, neural wiring. It's like a muscle memory um, when we keep feeding those same patterns. So creating a different kind of relationship really requires that you are willing to do something differently. And so if you find yourself in one of those conflict patterns, just, just pause, right? You don't need to keep going. Just pause and nip it in the bud and see if there's something that you could do differently. If you could try to be a little more gentle, if you could acknowledge that you're becoming defensive and try and start over or take some space. There are so many things that you can do differently. It's just that most of us, as soon as we're threatened, we go on into autopilot mode. Um, and, you know, the trouble with that is we all know how that story ends. It's typically pretty predictable, right? Um, and so if you do want a different outcome, you do need to be willing to, to do something differently. So I hope that this has been helpful. If you've enjoyed this episode, please, I would be so grateful if you could leave a five-star rating or leave a written review if you're listening on Apple podcasts, but otherwise just thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate you and I will see you again soon. Thanks for joining me for this episode of On Attachment. If you want to go deeper on all things attachment, love, and relationships, you can find me on Instagram at stephanie underscore underscore rig or at stephanierig.com. I've got loads of free content there. Plus, if you're interested, you can join the waitlist for the next round of my signature six-week program, Healing Anxious Attachment. Thanks again for joining me and I'll see you soon.